You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. She doesn't blame men for wanting younger women. It's evolution at work, hardwired into their brains. Once women can't have children and the children no longer require care, then what are women for? She read recently that women were supposed to die before or around the time of menopause, which explains why menopause is so awful. It's supposed to make you grateful to die. The world is done with you. Get out. Yet Eloise then stumbled on the writings of a scientist who said that menopause itself no longer serves a purpose. When childbirth was not a serious health risk, it was better if middle-aged women already loaded down with kids didn't have to worry about an untimely death in pregnancy. Now women are taunting science, having children past the age of 50. In her heart, Heloise doesn't think that's right, but she can't help cheering for anything that levels the playing field. If men can have children up until death, it seems only fair that women can too. Like a pro athlete, Paul had told her. And Val agreed. That was more hurtful. Val's ready agreement that she should move exclusively to the management side. All her life, the only thing men have wanted her for is sex. What else can she possibly provide at her age in this economy? What is she qualified to do? Laura Lippman was a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. She's the author of the Tess Monahan detective novels, including By a Spider's Thread, The Last Place, The Sugar House, Baltimore Blue, Charm City, Butcher's Hill, No Good Deed, and In Big Trouble. Her standalone novels include To the Power of Three, Every Secret Thing, What the Dead Know, Life Sentence, I'd Know You Anywhere, and The Most Dangerous Thing. Her stories are collected in Hardly Knew Her. Her new novel is When She Was Good. Thank you for joining me, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Laura, this is such an interesting novel about inner and outer world perceptions, and you've captured this wonderful heroine, uh, Heloise and Helen. I'd like you to talk about how and when you first discovered this character. Did you set out to write her, or did she kind of arrive and deliver herself unto you? She arrived quite some time ago. The idea developed back in the spring or summer of 2001, when, as a stepmother, on the sidelines of a soccer game. I believe I heard the other mothers gossiping about someone who needed to move in the wake of a divorce. I always held myself apart from the other mothers, the other parents, for fear that someone would think I was being presumptuous. I was a stepmom. You know, my stepson has a mother who is also present, so I didn't want to be someone who seemed to be taking my role too seriously. But I would listen to what people talked about, and I later asked about, well, well, why does this woman have to move? I I somehow had interpreted the story as had been one of, oh, she can't possibly stay now that she's divorced. It seemed like some sort of judgment. And I said, well, she simply doesn't have enough money. It's It's an expensive place to live, this desirable school district. And when people divorce, they don't get to stay here. It's really rare for anyone in the school to be a single parent. And I started thinking about that, and I thought, hmm, that's right, there are not very many single mothers here. What would it take to be one of them if you wanted to be? 
You would need a job that paid very, very well because you would need to be able to afford child care because even if your child is in school, there's still many hours of the day that the child has to be supervised. It would have to be a, a flexible job. It would be ideal if it was a job where you could arrange your hours so you didn't miss soccer games and school performances and field day. But, oh, I bet a high-priced call girl could manage that. And initially the idea was, was simply black humor. And it was just, oh, wouldn't it be funny if the single mom, you know, hidden prostitute in this suburb was actually the most moral and ethical person? Which is probably why it's good that I didn't get to write it right away. Uh, I talked to some editors about it. I talked to my editor in the U.S. and my editor in the U.K., and they weren't particularly captivated by the idea. And again, I think it's because I was presenting it very simplistically, just as, and the joke is, and it was sort of like, well, what is there beside the joke? And the character needed to, to steep in my mind for a while. And the thing that allowed me to start writing about her was a request from the writer Harlan Coben to make a contribution to an anthology he was editing. These anthologies are often organized around a simple theme. And in this case, it was love. Can you write a crime story about love? And I said, may I write a story about maternal love? Would that fit? He said, oh, yes, absolutely. And I said, okay, I'm going to write a story about a suburban prostitute who will do anything for her son. And that was the first Heloise story, and that came out in 2006. But I knew there was still a lot more to her story. Now, you had you had this story published in the anthology. Talk about discovering her life because how much of her life did you – how much of the iceberg was underneath that tip that we saw in the short story? What I knew factually about Heloise when I first started working about her is I knew that Heloise was, was not her given name, that it was a name she had taken for herself. I knew that she came out of a very complicated family situation in which her father was essentially a bigamist and had two families. She has a half-sister who is four months younger than she is, born to her father's wife, whom he left to be with Heloise, then known as Helen, to be with her mother when she became pregnant. And so even though her, you know, her father lives under their roof, even though her mother is the, quote, winner, he bounces back and forth between these two women for, the rest of, for much of the rest of his life. And I, that I knew. That's what I knew factually. So I already knew that there was this rather chaotic life, not enough money, uh, and certainly it was not a household in which a child would feel secure and safe, not once she came of age and began to see things and understand things. When it came time to, to write a novel about her, I had to think about, okay, who, who becomes a prostitute? How did this happen? What was the path? And a lot of writing, and when she was good, was filling in the parts I hadn't filled in for myself. How did we get from Helen as she was as a child to this very assured, smart businesswoman, which she is first and foremost, 
when we meet her in 2011 and when she was good, it's a given that a lot of women who end up in prostitution come from abusive homes, chaotic homes. I, I didn't want her to be a victim of sexual abuse. I didn't want it to be quite that on the nose. But I wanted her to come from a home where she didn't feel safe, where her father had been physically abusive, and where she was never quite sure that she would remain safe from him in terms of sex. But, but that is not what he does. Instead, she takes up with, with the wrong man, as, as women so often do. And that leads to another wrong man. And it just keeps leading to wrong decision after wrong decision. When you're were writing this, do you like have do you have notes about your character? Do you have like character sketches, or does this all kind of hang in the your brain cloud, uh, waiting to coalesce and rain down onto the pages? Most of it's in the brain cloud. I like that image, and when I'm working in a story that goes back and forth between past and present. It's pretty common for me to actually write it in strict chronological order and then rearrange it. And that's and what you did here? That's what I did here. I, I, it's a story is actually written chronologically. I, or that is to say, I wrote the entire Helen section. I wrote all the chapters about who she was before she became Heloise. And then I went back and started writing the Heloise chapters. Because I found I really couldn't understand her in the present day until I knew everything about her past. I knew a lot. I'd figured a lot of it out before I sat down to write but I had to know everything. And there's a real clear division between those two personas. So it helped to keep them straight. It helped for me to remember when I was writing about Helen and when I was writing about Heloise. And then I you know, rearranged it by simply going back and forth, back and forth between the two parallel lines I had created. And I do a lot of... Um, I do a lot of weird stuff as a writer. I do something that I, I've yet to find someone who does this, but I swear by it for myself. Usually, I always get stuck in the middle. and I like to think most writers must get stuck. I don't believe in being blocked. I, I think being blocked is something else. I think it's almost a, a psychological problem that has to do with fear and perfectionism and the terror of not writing a perfect book. And if you're really terrified of not writing a perfect book, the easiest thing to do is not to write. That's the one way you you can be sure that you you can be sure that you won't fail at the task of writing a perfect book if you don't write anything at all. So I don't believe in writer's block. That probably has a lot to do with my journalism background. But I always get stuck. I always get to a, a point somewhere in the middle where I can't see how the story can go forward and I can't figure out what to do. And generally at that point, I get out construction paper and sketchbooks and pens and glue pots and scotch tape. And I look at what I've written, and I try to come up with a non-textual version of it. I assign colors, to usually to certain characters. In the case of the Heloise book, I assigned one color to the present and one color to the past. And then I look at the scenes or the chapters. In this book, the chapters were largely scenes. They were they were pretty compact. So I'd say, okay, what's the shape of this? And I come up with a shape. This is all made up. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And I just start sort of gluing these things to this long piece of white paper. And then I look at it. And the first thing I'm saying to myself, is this pleasing to the eye? 
Or is it too much of one color, too much of one shape? Does it not have enough variety? And then sometimes I'll look at it and think, okay, this is, this is wrong. There is too much of this here. Or everything's too nicely shaped for a while. So I'm going to look at this and say something needs to happen here. Something jagged needs to be introduced, something unexpected. And I, kind of, and I have arrows that sort of chart whether characters are going up or down, whether good things are happening or bad things are happening. And that method has helped me solve structural problems in especially this book and especially in a book I wrote two years ago called um, I'd Know You Anywhere. You know, I'd Know You Anywhere. I actually took photographs of the outline of the first third of the book and put them up on my Facebook page to show people what I saw and how I fixed it. That I saw what the flaw was and I had to figure it out and I, I did it through using index cards of different colors that I'd cut into triangles. <laughs> That's how I do it. Well, you know, the, when you describe that, it makes perfect sense uh, because it, you're consulting some kind of, uh, I think, untappable part of yourself, an unconscious part of yourself. There's so much that happens under the hood creatively that you're not really, you can't, self-awareness of that stuff is annihilates it. It's, I think that's true. And I just think there's a point for every writer in the course of writing a novel where it's impossible not to go what I call text blind, where you can look at a sentence and you've seen it so many times in the in the space of a minute, you'll say, I think that's really good. No, I think that's really bad. I think it's really good. I think it's really bad. And, you know, there's this wonderful writing advice about killing your darlings. It is good advice. But at this point, you're involved in such a love-hate relationship with the manuscript, you can't even tell what your darlings are. And, and you, you, you love it and you're like, okay, get rid of that. And like, no, oh, no, wait a minute. Maybe that was necessary. So I just default for myself. There comes a time where I need to step back and not be thinking about the words so much that that I have to be thinking about shape and theme and and sort of step so far back that I'm not looking at the individual sentences. And how do you do that? I mean, that's this is how I solve that problem. You, you want to see the forest uh, instead of the trees. Exactly. Yes, that's that's wonderful. You know, this is a, such a. a, a carefully and intricately architected novel. And, and I love the, the difference in the language between the Heloise and, and Helen parts. And, and I think the way the subtle changes in the prose, present tense to past tense. And I thought that was made it so involving. And what I really like is that at one point, at, at the same time, this feels just like a novel, like a, a Balzac novel, you know, just a novel about or something, you know, about about modern America. But it's also incredibly suspenseful. And the way you wring suspense out of thin air is really interesting. Talk about creating suspense in each stream and between each stream. I... Um... I was at a conference recently in England that's held for, for crime writers. It's a, known as the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Theakston Old Peculiar being a, a brand of beer, beer and that stout. Un- yes. It's wonderful. And, and, they, and I used they, to love that stuff. They underwrite the festival, bless <laughs> really? them. And it's a really outstanding weekend of programming. 
And someone said, and it's killing me that I can't remember who said it because I would like to credit the writer with the insight because I thought it was really smart, that each book one writes is probably your reaction to the most recent book one has written. And in 2010, I wrote a book that was published in 2011 called The Most Dangerous Thing, and it was by design, very slow, even though it was a crime novel, and it had depending on how one wants to count it, 10 or 11 points of view. And it, it felt big and sprawling and very quiet. And so I think I had a yen to write a page-turner, I, I really, which is a hard thing to know. I do think writing page-turners is something that's much more mysterious than one would think it would be. There's some people who are just extraordinary at it. They're some of whom are not great prose stylists, but if you pick up one of their books, you cannot stop reading it. And if you ask those writers or you try to make a study of it, nothing seems to really come through other than, other than utter sincerity, that the writer is also finding this suspenseful. And I think for myself, as the writer of In When She Was Good, above everything, above the issues of whether she is physically safe in this world or if there's someone who means her harm, above and beyond the question of whether she will be able to keep her secret life secret from her son, because if she can't do that, all is for naught, beyond the suspense of what happens when she loses her protector in the police department, to me, the driving expense is one, the driving suspense is one that so many Americans are facing right now, which is, if I can't do this job, what do I do? If I lose this job and I'm middle-aged, where do I go? How do I reinvent myself? For Heloise, this is a much more freighted question because she doesn't have a college degree. She doesn't have any real work experience. You know, how would she in her late 40s, late 30s, going on 40? find a job that would allow her to continue to support this nice suburban lifestyle. And to me, that's the question that's driving the whole narrative. I mean, it's kind of funny in a crime novel where some very bad things happen that that could be the most suspenseful thing. But for me, it was. And I think another thing about suspense in novels I personally am not enamored of doting on scenes of violence. I don't like lavish descriptions of violence. I think that actually undercuts how awful violence is. Violence in this book tends to be, with one exception, that was deliberate because it's a, it's a scene in which someone is fighting for their life it tends to come out of nowhere very quickly and happen very quickly and be over very quickly, which I think makes it more horrible. Because that means, and this is actually true of life, so many people don't want to think about it, anything can happen to anyone at any time. And this is a novel where that is true. Anything can happen to anyone at any time. This is also a novel of a wonderful novel of about secret lives. And I think we all have secret lives. I, there's no way we cannot have secret lives until such time as we become a 
completely telepathic species, at which point I've hoped to be long <laughs> checked out. That, that's, ter- that's terrifying. <laughs> but um, given that we aren't, I, I'd like you to talk about the way you describe secret lives and explore them and how much we tell one another, how much we tell our family, because uh, Helen and Heloise uh, has so many layers of her life that she has to keep track of. And I thought that was a that in itself is such a, a, a terrorizing act of tension. You just don't know. Oh, my God. Who has she, who has she told this? Right. Sometimes she doesn't know. Sometimes she doesn't know. And it's actually because she can't even keep track sometimes. It, it, that That's one mistake that comes back to haunt her, that she doesn't remember at what point who she has told what to. I think we do all have secret lives. And I think the thing that's interesting about that is we live in a culture and a time, maybe human beings have always been this way, but I know they're this way now. It's easy to have secret lives because we can trust in the fact that most of the people we meet will be incurious about us. I, I had this thing happen to me the other day. I mean, I'll, I'm telling a story on my stuff. I am by no means exempt from this, by no means. I was sitting in the local coffee house in Baltimore where I like to write. It was a Monday morning, you know, back to work after a weekend at the beach. And a woman came in, a younger woman, younger than myself, doesn't make her that young. And she ordered huevos verdes, which I I envied because I was sitting there eating this very virtuous breakfast of a poached egg and whole wheat toast. And, and she ordered a Bellini Monday morning, 930. I just thought, whoa. I mean, I was really kind of feeling admiration for her. Like, you go, girl. And she's very sweet and, you know, sort of kept up a running conversation with the people who work there. She ordered a second Bellini and said to the staff, oh, you must think I'm awful. Like, no, no, no. I'm just thinking, nice life. And then she said, it's just that for the past two weeks, I've been caring for my severely disabled daughter, and I haven't had any help whatsoever. And at that moment, I, I you know, I literally closed my laptop computer, and I asked her some questions, and I talked to her about her daughter. But, you know, up until that moment, I had written her off. I had just, you know, created this nice little cliche in my head about who she was and what she was like. And if she happened, if she hadn't happened to volunteer that piece of information, I would have walked out of the coffee house without that stereotype being challenged. And, you know, I think we're all doing this all the time. It's interesting to me how hard people push back against the idea that they themselves ever stereotype. I think part of it is because generally when we talk about stereotypes, people think we're talking about race. And, of course, no one wants to be thought of as a racist. I understand that. So when I talk to people about our tendency to stereotype others, usually what I'll say is, have you ever been driving on the highway and been behind somebody who's going really slowly and thought to yourself, what a geezer? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, I think that's a stereotype. You don't know. You don't know that there's an old person driving the car in front of you. You don't know that all old people drive slowly. You know, it's a generalization that may have proven to be true to you time and time again, but you're taking a shortcut. 
you know, and I said, by the way, we all take these shortcuts. We all use stereotypes. There's so many things our brain does to make life simpler for us. And part of it is not to have everything be an open-ended question. We fall into stereotypes. We're incurious. You know, we, it's recently been determined, or I, re, I recently read a study about the fact that we don't tend to actually make up our minds on serious, profound issues by gathering all the information and then deciding what we think. We decide what we think, and then for the rest of our lives, we pay close attention to what supports our theories, and we tend to ignore what doesn't. And so, yeah, it's incredibly easy in American culture at large to have a secret life. I don't know what it's like in a truly small town. I've never lived in a small town, but I think even in small towns it's it's possible to have secret lives. One of the things I loved about this book was the the complicated notion of family in this book because we we meet so many different families, so many different versions of Helen's family and and she portrays her own family with different versions. I mean, it's a it's a kaleidoscope of American families, none of them that would fit any normal description of American family you might normally encounter. It's true she does have a lot of families and you know, she's she's furious at her family of origin and has written them out of her life. You know, they're, they're gone as far as she's concerned. She forms an ersatz family with her pimp and his workers and the, the stable of girls that come and go. That it, I think she actually refers to them as a family at one point. And then there, of course, is her life with her son. And, and the one person, you know, there, there is only one person in this novel maybe two, but I would say there's really only one who knows the totality of Heloise Helen, and that's the woman who looks after her son, the one person from whom she can't really have any secrets. She tries at first, but the, the barrier is broken down. And, but you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier being a stepmom, and the, the adults involved in my stepson's life, his mother, his father, and me. We worked really hard to have a successful blended family. And it took time. It wasn't automatic. It didn't happen overnight. But it it did happen. And, you know, that was an insight into a way that family can be and what family is. And what interested me as I started really going deep into Heloise's life is that she has, by design, cut herself off from so many things that would make being a parent easier. You know, if you don't have family, and she's pretty much cut herself off from any kind of family by present day, and you keep your distance from the your neighbors and you and you don't sort of engage in the sort of quid pro quo of favors, if you don't want to drive carpool if you just want to take care of your own kid then there's nobody there to help you when you need their help it's it's really sad she's so alone and she's so rigid and she has no friends literally no friends and i i just can't think of a sadder way to be in in any environment well i i, I kind of like 
that her mindset as Heloise because she's so steely and determined and and uh, I really admire she's kind of like a monk almost <laughs> like a, a Zen monk in the, in her existence it has very many aspects of that she's she follows routine she has rules and it they're all internal she her everything she does is based on kind of this internal set of rules she's constructed and she's pretty darn good at obeying them not perfect though which oh, proves to be a problem i know it's <laughs> like she has her blind spots and she makes mistakes she is incredibly disciplined and one thing you know, it sounds strange to, to speak this way. I've said, one thing I like about Heloise is if I had nothing to do with how she turned out, she never complains. She never complains about her life. And at one point in the book when it's observed that in her lifetime as a woman, she will only once have the luxury of being in love, you know, with that first boyfriend. And that's it. The rest of her life, her relationships with men will not f- follow normal romantic patterns it's observed but there's not pity in it there's not complaint there she's there's, she has no self-pity for the most part she and she she is remarkable in her ability to anticipate and control things but unfortunately no one can anticipate and control everything and there is some hubris there about her ability to always be on top of things, to have figured out. I, I know there's a passage in the book where it's, it's mentioned that she has insomnia, and she, she uses her insomnia to lie in bed and think about every possible pitfall. You know, everything, you know, like, of course, her, her biggest... Her 3 a.m. thoughts. Yeah, her 3 a.m. thoughts. I mean, her, you know, her biggest fear, of course, is that somehow the two lives will collide, and she's done everything possible to keep them as separate as possible. Because it's all about her kid, and he can't know what she does. And, you know, it's, it's important to her and to stress. She can't afford to be arrested. It doesn't matter if she can beat the rap. It doesn't matter that she's set up her business in such a way that they can't come after her for income tax evasion or any kind of mail fraud. You know, she's, she's been a careful student of how most madams are busted, and it usually is not for sex for money. It doesn't matter. If she's arrested, if she's in the newspaper, then her son knows about her secret life, and nothing else matters. So she has no margin of error whatsoever. This is such an interesting heroine. Uh, and one of the things I, I liked about this book, and I, I have to tell you, I didn't think I would like it. I was was the way you deal with prostitution. This is a really difficult subject to deal with without coming off like a Lifetime movie or without coming off like a Roger Corman movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard to steer between those the, those two sirens uh, of uh, prose, but I think you do a fantastic job. And a lot of this has to do with the way you set up Helen originally and the way we meet her originally. We meet her in the present and we meet this really well-disciplined businesswoman and we meet her in the past with this complicated family. Uh, So talk about uh, bringing in this subject that can be 
uh, a real annihilator of the exact effect you managed to achieve, which is of a of a really dense and beautifully written but incredibly suspenseful novel. I think it would be hard to find a book about a prostitute with less sex in it than this book has. There's almost no sex in this book. There's a little bit. Uh, but I think I saw quickly that writing those scenes would undercut what I hoped to do with it, that they would be prurient. It just wouldn't, It doesn't matter what you try to do. So I had very little interest in sort of showing her at work. You know, there, there are references, there are allusions, and certainly there is some sex in the book, but probably a lot less than, than some people would like. I had to think a lot about what I thought about prostitution while writing this book, and even as I was, even after writing it, as someone who's ex- extremely, extremely, extremely liberal and believes that women should have the right to do with their bodies as they will, my knee-jerk starting out point was, well, of course prostitution should be legal. Why shouldn't it be? You know, I, I think women should get to do with whatever they want to do with their bodies, and I, I find it suspect that prostitution is illegal. You know, this one thing where uh, it's a market that women would dominate, and it's, it's not legal. I don't understand that. But as I read more and studied more and looked at what some scholars have written on the subject and people from think tanks, what I came to understand is that the problem with legalizing prostitution is that it then becomes impossible to punish people who might exploit others, you know, their pimps and madams, what have you, and that there are populations that are extremely vulnerable to exploitation, uh, particularly illegal immigrants, for example. You know, in the United States, if you had women who were here illegally and didn't wish to be deported, if they were being forced to work as prostitutes, to whom would they complain without risking deportation? So as I thought about it, I you know, decided that I would like to live in a world, a utopia where legalized prostitution would be possible because that would be a world in which people are not exploited by others. But given that I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon, I would like to see the act of prostitution decriminalized while promoting prostitution should still probably carry a fairly significant criminal penalty. And I I had some really good advice from my husband who, although a writer himself, is not someone who's quick to give me advice or to tell me how to do what I do. But he did say as I started to work on the novel, having read the original Heloise stories, he said, don't make it benign. It, it, is a, it is a business with dark corners. And the fact that, you know, Heloise gives her girls health insurance doesn't mean her hands are clean. And, and there is a dark side to it. And I think that, like, one of the things I didn't do copious research. I did some research. I mean, as a novelist, I don't, I don't feel that research is actually always the best thing to do, and I think it can hamper the imagination. Different people, women generally, but different people are going to have different responses to having been sex workers. And there are people who have worked temporarily as sex workers gone on to different lives and been fine with it. 
there are people for whom it really leaves very painful marks. And then there are the people in between who say it didn't bother them, but it probably did. This is a story a friend told me about a friend, about a young man she knows who, when he first moved to a city, was essentially sort of working as a paid escort and allowing men to buy him gifts and give him money. And he talks of it now as if it was just such a lark. But if you question him a little more closely, he admits that it wasn't really that much of a lark and that it was a time when he was often very angry and sad and extremely conflicted about what he was doing. And did he have the power or was he giving power to other people? I mean, that's the dynamic there. It's like, you know, who who has the power in this relationship? Who has the money? Who has the sex? Who's Who's really calling the shots? In this book, language is incredibly important and that's it's very interesting because i mean the on the prose level the way you write the different parts is important but also too the power of euphemism is 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 uh reigns over all and, and i i really like the way you play with that it's it's fun and it's a, and it's quite scary and it's also gives us a lot of insight into the characters. And I'd like you to just talk about crafting the language for this, you know, euphemism, avoidance, you know, direct threats. It, it crosses the full spectrum of the way we speak to one another. And I think that it makes that given the subject you're dealing with, the way that the language is used it allows you to kind of externalize something we do all the t- time, but don't think about as much. In this in this uh, situation, it's it has some clout. Well, you know, Heloise is an autodidact, and as an autodidact, she's very much in love with the knowledge she has obtained because it's been hard for her. You know, she it, it hasn't been handed to her, and so she's someone we learned very early in the book that that she cares about precision and language and that she knows things about language that she hears misused all the time. I think very early in the book she she thinks that a well-dressed woman standing near her in the coffee house would probably use the word disinterested incorrectly. And someone asked me if these were my little grammar issues, and I said, not particularly. They happen to be things I know. One thing I've come to understand is that when when we know something, we tend to take it really seriously. So, like if you if you know the proper use of uninterested versus disinterested, and you hear someone use it incorrectly, you're sort of thinking, "Aha!" But you know, since the internet has come along, and you see this behavior all the time of people in message um, on message boards jumping on each other. You know, they jump on each other like. Like you misspelled this word, so you're not intelligent. You misused this word cor- incor- incorrectly, so you're not intelligent. Like everyone's seizing on these tiny little things. We take what we know very seriously, and we're, we kind of shrug off what we don't know very blithely. Uh, how, this is a part where you talked earlier in our conversation about the writer's subconscious. And 
to a certain extent, these voices emerged not so much from subconscious but from character. Whatever voice I'm in in this book, outside of dialogue, is either the voice of young Helen or the more experienced, established Heloise. And I could simply hear her voice in my ear. It was very precise. It was very specific, especially the adult Heloise. And then I had to kind of carve back the layers and try to find the girl that she once was under this very carefully established facade. And in terms of language, I've this was my 19th book, if we include the short stories as, as a book of its own. And over the course of writing all those books, one of the things I had to accept, I think that writers have innate voices much in the same way that you have a frame that's either mesomorph or ectomorph or endomorph. I believe those are the three. Mm-hmm. And while you can exercise and choose a certain kind of diet, there's only so much you can do to really affect your frame, the frame that you were born with. And I think there's only so much you can do to affect the innate voice you have as a writer. And I was a reader first. One would hope that all writers were readers first and continue to be. And I love language and I love poetry and I love beautiful language. And, you know, certainly in crime fiction, I loved kind of the hard-boiled poetry of certain writers. It doesn't come out of me. It's... And, and so when I accepted that I could not write in the style that I admired, I had to decide, okay, what is, what is my style? And I've just been trying very hard over, from book to book to book to write in this really kind of clean, lucid, almost transparent way, you know, where I disappear you know, if, if I'm doing my job right, I'm not in the book. Only Heloise is in the book. And I, I do care a lot about dialogue. I'm, I'm a notorious eavesdropper. Just, just unabashed. I mean, I'm really, it's barely eavesdropping. I, I really don't mind when people catch me listening to them. I'm just, it's usually in a public place. It's not like I put my glass, a glass up to the wall or tried to sneak up on someone. And I listen to speech all the time. And I think about how people speak to each other. I'm, this was actually uh, an observation made by David Chase, who wrote The Sopranos, that I thought was really instructive for all writers, which is that most conversations are not very much on the nose. It, you know, you don't sit there and say, look, I'm feeling insecure today. You know my family situation, and I've always suffered from low self-esteem, and I've always worried that I wasn't the most beloved child. And so, therefore, when you forget to buy the things that I like best at the grocery store, it really brings up all those old feelings, and I wish you'd remember to, to buy the orange juice. You're like, no, like, 
why don't you ever buy orange juice? <laughs> and that was, you know, that was a really great insight. And so in Heloise in particular, because, again, she's living a secret life, is someone whose conversations are just studded with these sort of, well, let's just call them, you know, cul-de-sacs of misdirection. You know, she's constantly trying to make sure that people are not paying too much attention to her or not listening too closely or not really thinking about what she, you know, how does she afford that car and those clothes and really how much money could she make as a lobbyist? And she's a lobbyist, but she never seems to be associated with any successful legislation whatsoever. And no one's ever seen her in a hearing room. And, you know, so I think that through her character and through the necessity of, of these various facades she's constructed, that's where the, the language came from and, and the voice. You know, when you were talking just now, I realized Eloise is a criminal mastermind. She's smarter than Dr. Moriarty if she wants to be. I mean, she really does something. And, and what I like about that is, and this is true throughout this novel, is everything is very low key. I mean, you this all seems like these seem like people we might know this seems like stuff that might happen all the way through and, and I really like that notion that you how smart she is and as I say she is a criminal mastermind she gets away with stuff that you know that is very sophisticated and she has to think a lot but it just seems like it's it's a great also a great novel about American suburbia well, it, it's Someone, you know, again, you talk about the subconscious at work. I talked to one interview this interviewer this week who was very taken with the fact that Val's two bodyguards, uh, her pimp's two bodyguards, are called George One and George Two. And he said, that's like a reference to what came before the American Revolution. I was waiting for George III to show up. And I had to say, you know, that was so unconscious. There you're giving me too much credit. But it is a novel about how we live now. You know, and those, and I, and I said, you know, it is significant that the first time that young Helen realizes that her father is cheating on her mother with the woman to whom he is still legally married, although he left her years ago, is that she sees them at the drive-through lane at McDonald's, and and she even tries to think, well, it's a, it's a small town. Everybody ends up at McDonald's eventually. Her father sold used cars. Her mother was a car hop who becomes a nurse. They live in an unnamed small town in southern Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's, 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 most of the book takes place in suburbia. There's very little of downtown Baltimore in it. There, 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 there are a few scenes that take place in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. But even the pimp lives in the suburbs, you know, lives in a big house out on the, out on the water that leads to the bay. And, you know, I, I am interested in, in those kind of details. I'm really fascinated with books about how we live now. The book I'm reading right now is is Capital by John Lancaster. And I don't know, I'm not sure I'm saying his last name right, but I just love this book because he's looking at this one stretch of road in a neighborhood in London where the homes have become very, very expensive. It's 2008. It's right before things are going to come crashing down. And there's the older woman who's lived there for so long that, you know, to her, she has, doesn't even realize how valuable her house is, and it still has the original linoleum in the kitchen. And 
Then, of course, there's the much richer couple that's redone everything. And then there's the Polish workman who does those jobs, who makes the renovations. And there's the, the news agent who I think is Pakistani. And all of these lives are intersecting on this one street. And the details of I love the details of what people wear, what people drive, what people eat, how they eat it. You know, early in this book, you see Heloise eating at a sushi, at a sushi place, and it is 2011, and it has the misfortune to be known as tsunami. There, you know, there really is a sushi restaurant not far from my home in Baltimore named that, and I have wondered. I was like, after the after the tsunami, what do you what do you do? You know, that just it seemed like such just a meaningless name before, and now it's it's not so great. Yeah, I'm I'm I one I'll tell you one great missed opportunity in this book. When I finished this book, I had so much regret that I did not expend more time setting up the world of Tommy's market. Where there only there's only one scene set there. But I'm I'm fascinated by grocery stores. I mean I really have this obsession with them. Interestingly, and I travel a lot, you know, in part because of being an author, grocery stores are not the least bit homogenous. They really change from city to city. Like they're even set up differently. Like what's on one aisle isn't necessarily on the same aisle and they have different things and so I love to go into different grocery store chains. And, but I'm, I'm especially interested in sort of that kind of high-end, precious kind of market mm. and the sort of things they sell and the sort of things that people begin to expect to find there. And I, I wish I'd done a lot more with Tommy's Market to explain, you know, it's the kind of place where, of course, you, you know, get your organic, cruelty-free turkey. And that's why there's, it's so mobbed on Thanksgiving. Yeah, I... I um, and of course, one of the things I love about Heloise is everywhere she goes, everything's a business. And she's always evaluating other businesses and trying to see if there's a lesson for her. And she's smart, too. She learns a lot and she sees a lot. She, she, I mean, she should be getting an MBA. There's just no doubt in my mind that she is a natural fit for business. She's very thoughtful. She's really interested. She's interested in human psychology. Which you know what makes a what makes an, a luxury good desirable to people? You know why are men going to choose her service when she's actually made it somewhat difficult because she wants to screen people and not have walk-ins and do everything possible to keep herself from being the target of of law enforcement or you know bat you know guys who are just dangerous and. Every place she goes, she she sees some kind of lesson, you know. And, you know, walking through a luxury hotel, going shopping, sitting in a sushi restaurant, she's always thinking about, how can I apply this to my business? This is also a, a wonderful portrait of motherhood, both being on the receiving end of motherhood as she is, as young Helen is, and being on the giving end of motherhood as she is in in the Heloise portions of the book. And I thought that was such an interesting contrast, uh, the way the way you play with that. And I and it's it gives us such a a rich picture of what it's like to be a mother right now or what it can be like. Thank you. I, I mean I, I hoped, I tried. I it happens that I wrote the, I've only been a mom for a short period of time. I've only written two books since becoming a mom. 
And, you know, before I became a mom, before I was a parent, people would say, if you become a parent, you're going to write very different books. And what I thought they meant was that I would be terrified of doing so-called child jeopardy, that, you know, I'd, I've written several books in which bad things happen to children. And I don't know if that's what people meant or not, but that, that hasn't been the experience. I mean, I'm, I'm not sentimental about childhood. I, I was a child, and I know what children are like. I have a different kind of empathy for, for parents now. It's much more personal for me. I think I now feel on a much deeper level the futile hope that you can make your child's life perfect every day. And you know you're doomed to failure. You know, you, you just know. I, I mean, that you can't protect your children from, from disappointment and sadness and unhappiness because that comes for everyone. And yet you can't help wanting to do that, even though that actually might not be best for children. They say that children should know some unhappiness and disappointment. And lately we've been too obsessed with making life smooth for them. I, and I, I also think that all women, it doesn't matter if you love your mother, if you hate your mother, if you're somewhere in between. I, I happen to be someone who loves my mother and thinks the world of her. But I still didn't think I was going to be her. I didn't think I was going to be my mom. And I kind of am. You know, and, I, and I think that's something that Eloise is struggling with, is she's so sure she's not her mother. She's so sure she's mapping out a life for herself that the, the one thing she can say to herself is, I'm a better mother than my mother was. I don't make the same mistakes. And that's called into question throughout the events in this book. That maybe she has made some of the mistakes, whether she same mistakes, whether she knew it or not. I I love the the way you use the choices that the characters make for plot points and the whole storytelling uh, narrative here. I mean, it's very sophisticated, going back and forth between these two timelines, how one feeds into the other. We already know what's going to happen when the book starts. We already were presented with Heloise who's the result of the Helen we've also met. And I think that that's a really nice way. It's very suspenseful. I mean, I, there's no page on this book that I couldn't wait to turn and find and find out what was going to happen immediately. And, and I'd like you to talk about creating... Because one of the things I think is so interesting, as we read this and these people make choices, as readers, we're thinking, well, what if she did this other thing? And I, I think that's such an interest the kind of that also generates suspense. It's 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 almost as if it's a time travel book and when you read the sections about Helen in the past you keep thinking, Well, if you just do this differently, you know, it is like don't go to go open that door, don't do that, just do this differently and you won't end up as Heloise. And yet uh of course she she does. And I think that all comes down to character of of it's my hope that people become very invested in this character, and so they're they're rooting for her in a weird way, even though they sort of think they shouldn't be rooting for her because of what she does. This people are very sophisticated about narrative. 
it's actually very hard to surprise people, I think. And I think it's especially hard to surprise them if a writer is truly playing fair. If you, if you ask people how they think a book or a film they've yet to read or see is going to end, they pretty much know. Um, you know, it's so rare that I've gone to a movie and, and haven't known how it's going to end. There's one in particular that sticks out for me. It's a film I ended up presenting at the uh, Maryland Film Festival one year. It's called Funny Bones. It had uh, Oliver Platt in it and Jerry Lewis. And and at the very climax of the film, something's happening, and you realize, I don't know what's going to happen next. And that's because I don't know if I've been watching a comedy or a tragedy. And if it's a comedy, it's going to be resolved this way. And if it's a tragedy, this other thing's going to happen. But until that moment, I won't know. That's really rare. So I think that I think that sophisticated readers, and most readers are sophisticated, they sort of know what's going to happen by the end of the book. We don't with this one. And it's, it's <laughs> well, it's hard to figure it out. It's hard to figure out. You, it's like I think this is what would probably happen, but how in heck could that happen? How could that possibly happen? And I, I really wanted to write a book in which we saw. Elmer Leonard writes a certain kind of book that I've always admired, and I think it's really hard to write. And he did it with an earlier title that's one of my favorite books of his called Stick. And what often happens in an Elmer Leonard novel or perhaps a Donald Westlake novel is you have a character who's got problems coming at them from different directions. They have problem A, they have problem B, they have problem C, they have problem D. And the solution is to make the problems take care of the problems. And it's really hard to do. It's 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 a very, it's a, it's it's almost like writing farce, which I think is also very hard to do to write a truly successful farce where, you know, you're orchestrating all of these characters and the slamming of doors and people running in and out. And I'd always wanted to try to do it, and I'd always been scared to do it because I think it's very difficult. And I realized when I was writing this book that this was a book where the main character had so many problems and that to some extent she was going to have to make problem A, defeat problem B, or some, you know, pit the problems against each other and take all the problems out. And if you do it right, maybe you'll be the last one standing. But it's, um, she also relies on, on not a little bit of luck. You have to be an artful dodger. Step out of the pro- out of harm's way and let harm collide. Right, with harm. exactly. It's exactly. It's like you know. It's sort of like a coyote roadrunner thing, where the roadrunner just takes the neat step to the side, and the coyote can blam straight into the the, the hard object. Except in this book, it's it's filled with 
powerful characters, we people we really care about. And that's one of the things, too, is that there are scenes in this book, and in fact, most of this book is something that, as a reader, you can go back and revisit and say, oh, yeah, I remember that scene. And that's, what, that's the hallmark of a good book, is that one, you can go back and the memories of reading the book become somewhat indistinguishable from your own memories. You know, it's a funny thing about crime novels is because so many people read them to find out what happens at the end. And the best crime novels, and I'm not putting my own my own out there because I never do that, but I will say that the best crime novels not only hold up on rereading, they're, they're often actually better the second time around. You know, it's really interesting to go back into a novel that had you racing toward the end to see how is this going to happen, to then consider these these tiny little pivots, these places in the story where the author actually tells you a great deal with as little as a word. You know, I I try to reread the books I admire most because it's it's really fascinating to, to watch how other writers put these stories together. Well, alas, we will have to reread this book until your next book comes out. How far are you into it? Not as far as I should be, but I, again, it's almost a reaction to this book. As I said earlier in the conversation, this is now the the book I'm writing next is inspired by real life events in in Baltimore. People who have seen the movie Liberty Heights by Barry Levinson have seen one version of this story. There was a man in Baltimore named Julius Salisbury who essentially ran the numbers and the the sports book. And he was convicted of mail fraud, I believe, and given an unusually harsh sentence of 15 years. He was out on appeal, and he walked away, disappeared, was never seen again. No one ever knew what happened. He left behind a wife, three daughters, and a mistress. And I'm writing a novel about the lives of those five women from 1976 to... 2012, and there there is a murder, and there is a whodunit element to it. But I was just really interested in the lives of the of the wife who didn't have a husband, the daughters who didn't have a father, and the mistress who no longer had her boyfriend, and how those all intersect, and the things that happen because the father had to disappear. I love the theory, the uh, stories of the disappeared that. So many people do disappear, and disappearance is such an interesting phenomena in and of itself. Harlan Coben, whom I interviewed recently on, on stage at Harrogate, I, I noted that he used it all the time, and he said, if you think about it, disappearance is much more suspenseful than, than murder. You know, with murder, with a homicide in a book, you know what happened. You know, they're, they're, I mean, you, the person is dead, and now the thing to investigate is who has done this. But when someone is missing, you don't even know that much. Like, are they dead? Are they alive? If they're alive, where are they? Why aren't they coming back? What has happened to them? Um, are they being held against their will? Is it something awful? Did I, or are they awful? Did they leave me? And it's true. I, I do think that missing people, the stories of the missing make some of the best stories. I've been speaking with Laura Lippman. Her new novel is When She Was Good. Thank you for joining me, Laura. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been great. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.